Luke chapter 7 can be found on page 731 in your pew Bibles. Page 731, Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you. 
hours and hours but um, there's so much I mean there's so much snow it's just hard to find places to put the snow um, after we shoveled it but uh, you know thank, thankfully we were able to uh, shovel it and get our cars out of the driveway and, and also be here to, to worship with you this morning um, I also had the opportunity to uh, go to Minneapolis earlier this week to attend the conference and I guess you know the people over there it's Minnesota right so they're just used to these things. It was snowing there, and it, and it was cold, and, and it was, you know, colder than it gets here. And I just kind of chuckled to myself, because I was walking out of a session one time, and, and I overheard these two guys. They must have been, you know, local residents talking, and they were looking out the window, and they were like, wow, it's 23 degrees today. It's so warm, and it's so nice outside. And I was like, 
I don't think 23 degrees is that warm. And, and I, I shared this with, uh, with another person I met after uh, another session, and he's like, oh, oh yeah, it actually is really warm because the week before, uh, it was minus 18 degrees. And this was without wind chill. It was the air temperature outside was minus 18 degrees. So they thought 23 was like fabulous. And I always thought it was like freezing. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I just, you know, share that because, you know, we are thankful that, you know, God is in control and, and He is sovereign and, and once again, it's good to see you guys today. Um, the fact that, you know, we had this big snowfall and uh, the church was closed on Friday and Saturday, I didn't have time to, to get an outline into your bulletin, but I do have the outline in PowerPoint so you can follow along with that if you want. And we're going to be taking a break uh, from Revelation this week, our series in Revelation. Um, and as we get into the message uh, this morning, I just want to share up front that, you know, oftentimes I, I wish that I didn't worry so much about what people thought about me. And, and I bet many times you feel that way too. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw the story in the news a few weeks ago, but there's a story about a waiter who, who was working in a waste restaurant in Houston, Texas. And in the section um, was a woman and her son who were regular customers. Uh, the son was five years old, and, and he happened to have Down syndrome. And at the time, the boy wasn't being bad. He was just uh, making little noises and talking. His, his speech was a little slow because of his handicap. Um, they said, you know, he, he wasn't too loud. He was a bit loud, but he wasn't uh, too loud. And another family sitting nearby, uh, this particular family, uh, overheard um, the boy and, and became annoyed and asked to be moved to a different table. Um, so they were moved further from the family, uh, but still in this waiter, uh, Michael's section. Uh, Michael overheard the man uh, making disparaging marks about the five-year-old. And one comment in particular just kind of struck a nerve with the waiter. He heard the man say, Special needs children need to be special somewhere else. And so he went up to the table where this man said this, and he said, you know, sir, sorry, I'm not going to be able to serve you anymore. And as the family got up to leave, Michael further shouted the man, and he's like, you know, how could you say something like this? How could you say that about, you know, this five-year-old, this beautiful five-year-old angel? And Michael didn't tell the woman or son what happened, but another waiter who saw the incident and overheard what was going on told the mother and the boy. And when told about the incident, the woman, as expected, was quite grateful, even more so when she found out that the family that he told off were actually also regular customers to the restaurant. And the woman said, you know, I was impressed that somebody would step out of their comfort level, their own comfort level and put their job on the line as well as to stand up for somebody else. When I read that story, I was thinking, you know, I wonder if I was the waiter, if I was in the same situation, would I have done the same thing? Would I have been willing to stand up for what I knew, what is right, even though I know it would have been provocative? You know, more likely, I think I probably would have just bit my tongue and not said anything, not to, be, not to offend the people. And what would you do? What would you have done in this situation? Would you have said something, or would you have just bit your tongue? You know, sometimes I wish I didn't care so much what people thought about me, and I think many of you do too. 
In my reading, I ran across a term coined by some sociologist, I don't know his name, but um, the term that I want to highlight is this term, in-between places. And what in-between places are, you can see on the slide, is it's a place that are ne is neither our world nor another's. And as you can guess from the term, so it's somewhere in the middle, where everyone's both comfortable and uncomfortable, where everyone's forced to adapt by a few degrees. The ways we talk, the interests we engage in, everyone just has to shift a little bit to fit into an in-between place. So as such, in-between places are not like your fellowship group or this church for people who come here regularly and are believers, nor are there places like you know, country clubs or neighborhood bars for those who frequent those places regularly. Or they're not even things you know, like biker clubs or you know, bridge, bridge meetings or, or things like that. Where in-between places are are places like schools, offices, your neighborhood, or the apartment building you live in, restaurants, shopping malls, the gym. You know. And as you think about it, probably for most of you, most of your time is spent in in-between places. And we'll find that how we conduct ourselves in in-between places can make quite a bit of difference. When we first read the account in this setting, you know, this place actually should not have been an in-between place, at least you know, not for the host. We find a Pharisee inviting Jesus into his home for dinner. And for the Pharisee, once again, this was his home, a place of comfort, a place where he had control, you know, a place that was secure. Before I go further, just let me uh, make, make, uh, go on a tangent for a bit and, and make a, a clarification. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this story or at least familiar with the account of a woman anointing Jesus. We may remember Mary, the sister of Martha, anointing Jesus with an expensive bottle of perfume. But this was a different incident here. Our incident takes place in Galilee, if you follow, uh, if you look back in, in the preceding chapter, in the town of Nan. The other account takes place in Bethany. This dinner was hosted by a Pharisee named Simon. The other place was hosted by a man named Simon who was a leper. Uh, this incident takes place earlier in Jesus' ministry, while the other account takes place near the end of Jesus' life, before the Last Supper. So we find in Scripture that there are at least two separate times when, G when a woman came to anoint Jesus. So don't get the two confused, uh, because at first I did, but then in, you know, I realized that these are actually two different incidents. But anyway, back to our story. So we have Jesus as the guest in this Pharisee's home. And he wasn't the only guest in the town. There would have been other important people there, associates of the Pharisees. And picture you know, a U-shaped table that's kind of lying low to the ground. And so you have this U-shaped table lying low to the ground, pillows are along the outside, and the men are lying down with their left hand supporting uh, themselves on the floor, and they're reclining at the table, their feet, well, the left hand would be laying down, yeah, and their feet would be jutting out uh, to the right side, and they would be eating with their right hand. Since Jesus was considered a public figure, it's quite possible the doors to this house remained open so that other interested parties could come and sit along the edges of the room to hear the discussion. They could sit and listen, but they were to remain on the sidelines. And now the woman enters the story. This woman, as we see in the passage, has no name, just a label, sinner. And we are not told why 
she was known as a sinner. Some have speculated that this woman could have been a prostitute, maybe an adulteress, maybe she was a swindler, maybe a combination of all of the above. We don't know. But what we do know is that everyone in town knew of this woman as sinner. She enters the story and what should have been a place of security, a place of control for Simon, now becomes an in-between place. And as we look at the actions of the woman and actions or reaction of Simon, I want to contrast the differences in how they conducted themselves in this type of setting. First, we see that the woman exhibited boldness while Simon remained passive. For the woman to even come off the sidelines once again to try to engage Jesus would have taken you know, just a great amount of audacity. I mean, not only was it understood that people just don't come off the sidelines to engage people, you know, engage the party, especially women. But here was a sinner, a known sinner, trying to enter the space of holy men. You know, how could something impure dare interfere with what is pure? And what's more, since Jesus was seen as a religious figure, there was a chance he could have outright rejected her and her acts. And so there was, you know, very much a possibility for this woman to face rejection. You know, but she wasn't phased. She risked scorn to approach Jesus. The Pharisee, on the other hand, wasn't daring at all. As we heard from the reading later in the story, Jesus rebukes the Pharisee for things he didn't do when Jesus entered the home. He didn't give him water to wash his feet. He didn't greet him with a kiss. He didn't put some oil, uh, make some oil available to put on his head. But understand that the host was actually under no obligation to do any of these things. He wasn't required to wash his feet. He wasn't required to put oil on his head. And I don't think up until this point, Simon didn't do these things because he had hostility towards Jesus. I mean, he was willing to invite Jesus into his home. He probably, you know, just to have an opportunity to get to know him better, not, not to trap him or anything like that. He was willing to consider him a prophet up to the point that the woman anointed him. And he even refers to Jesus as teacher in verse 40. So it's not that he failed to do what he should have done. It's just that he didn't do anything extra for Jesus. He didn't go that extra mile for Jesus. Secondly, the woman's boldness allowed her to perform an act of humility while the Pharisee exuded pride. As the woman approached Jesus, the conversation around the table probably stopped as the men must have been like, taken aback and were wondering, like, what is this woman doing? How dare she do something like that? She's overcome with emotion, and something inside of her causes her to just break out in tears. And she uses those tears to drip on Jesus' feet. And without a towel, she lets down her hair and proceeds to wash, wash and wipe Jesus' feet with it. And this is the dirtiest part of a person's body. The area where you pick up the most grime, the most mud, the most dirt from walking outside with your feet, uh, with your feet exposed. You know, she wipes his feet with her hair. And then she begins to kiss his feet, and then takes an expensive jar of perfume. Perfume, ex perfume was back then. Expensive perfume could have been quite costly. It could have, you know, been the equivalent of a person's annual salary back then. 
But she takes this expensive bottle of perfume and breaks it and pours it on his feet. I mean, not only, you know, do we read this, and, and, and we know this act would have been uncomfortable and, and highly awkward to see, but this act was even more so would have been seen as scandalous back then. Because back in those times, women didn't let down their hair in front of anyone except for their husbands. According to the Talmud, which was, you know, this Jewish commentary, that could have been grounds for divorce to let down a woman's hair. You know, culturally, a woman letting down her hair could have been equated to like a woman, you know, taking off her shirt in public. I mean, women just didn't do this type of thing back then. I mean, this entire act performed on Jesus could have been seen as almost like this woman was trying to seduce Jesus. And the woman knew all these things, but she didn't care. And she was willing to face the scorn of others, to humble herself, to do what she did before Jesus. The Pharisee, on the other hand, saw this act, and like everyone else sitting around the table except Jesus, you know, was shocked. If Jesus were really a prophet, he would never let this be done to him. Holy people distance themselves from sinners, not let them draw close to you. And so Simon Thankfully, he thinks to himself, you know, I'm a holy person. I would never let such a scandalous act come to me or be done to me like this. And he rests in his pride. And then related to that is this third contrast, which is Simon, while he, you know, in saying what he does is critical of Jesus, while the woman, through her acts, seeks to make much of Jesus. As we will see in the story later on, the woman performed this act out of love. And gratitude. The Pharisee, on the other hand, can only be disparaging that Jesus would allow this sinful woman to do such sinful acts to him. If he really were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. Meaning, prophets know that sinners are to be stayed away from. And so Jesus is no prophet for letting this immoral person come near to him. And the reason the Pharisees thinks this way is the last contrast that I want to make is because he dwells on the past sins of people while the woman knows that Jesus has freed her from her past life to live life anew. For the Pharisee, you know, he doesn't need to know the woman's name. He doesn't even need to know that this is a woman. All he needs to know is her label and reputation. And again, sinner. And that's enough to know that this woman is bad news. You know, stay away from her. Keep Keep your distance. The woman, though, understands that she has been given hope and has been transformed to live for her future, that her past sins have been forgiven, and she no longer needs to dwell on it. As once again, here's this chart you know, highlighting some of the differences between the Pharisee and the woman. And you can just see you know, marked contrast between the two. And what is it? that has caused the difference between the two? What makes them so different? Jesus uses a parable to illustrate. And at the beginning, there's already some irony because as soon as the Pharisee has made his mind that Jesus could not have been a prophet because he would have known who this woman is and what this woman is doing to Jesus, Jesus reads Simon's mind and calls him by name. Simon, I have something to tell you. And though we never learn the woman's name, and Simon doesn't even care. Jesus calls Simon by his name to let him know that he cares about him and is also calling him. 
And so Jesus proceeds to tell this story about the two men who were in debt, one owed about what was equivalent to a two-month wage back then, and the other owed which would have been the equivalent of about a 20-month wage back then. Both debts were forgiven, and Jesus asked Simon, now which of them will love the lender more? Simon replies correctly, I suppose it was the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And after explaining both the woman's actions and Simon's lack of action, Jesus sums up the principle in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. That's it. Radical forgiveness produces radical acts of love. Little forgiveness produces little acts. You see, what Simon failed to recognize in the parable is that both debtors actually needed the same amount of their debt forgiven. All of it. It's not that some people only need a little forgiveness while others need a lot. We all need to be totally forgiven. And this is what Jesus is asking Simon to understand. Up till now, Simon sees himself as just a little sinner. So he's not a great lover. And we can see this is true because we find that he's not such a great host. And Jesus is calling Simon to understand that like the woman, he needed his whole debt canceled. And Jesus is the generous money lender who cancels all debts. Well, at the conference I attended this week, um, one other thing I think that God just impressed me upon, uh, impressed upon me was just this reminder of, you know, the glorious act of salvation. You know, that God sent his son Jesus to come down to earth and live a perfect life and die a horrific death on the cross and rise again so that we can be reconciled back to him. This is a miraculous event. This is a glorious event. Why? Because he saved you and because he saved me. And it doesn't matter whether you became a Christian at age 6 or 26, and it doesn't matter whether you were a drug-dealing mass murderer before you became a Christian or whether you were this squeaky clean kid. We don't need to look at our past lives. We know our hearts. You know your heart. God made a, made a dead heart come alive. You were once living in darkness, but now you are living in light. And this is a marvelous thing. This is a glorious thing. And this is what Jesus is asking us to grasp. But too often, I think, you know, we just forget about these things. Earlier this week, I was, I was just kind of singing the song that we sang last Sunday, The Stand. You know, we sang it, as, I think, uh, in, in, the op- in the opening set last week. And, and I like this song. You know, I, I think a lot of you like this song. And I think it's... You know, cool when we get to the bridge part and, you know, we're singing the bridge and then all the instruments drop out except the drums, you know, and it's kind of cool because we got this tribal chant going on and we're like, yeah, you know, I'll stand, you know, with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. You know, and I was singing this bridge to myself and I just had to stop and I was like, really? You know, is my heart really abandoned? Am I really in awe of Jesus? who gave it all? Do I realize how great my salvation is? And if so, how is that seen? You know, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven little will love little. 
One of the things one of the speakers at the conference encouraged us to do is just take some time, you know, to meditate on God and meditate on this glorious salvation. You know, when you go into school or work, you know, he's encouraging us, you know, just turn off the radio. Stop playing with your phones, your smartphones. Stop messing around with your tablets. He's like, our lives are busy enough. Just turn this stuff off and just sit there and be still and dwell on God. Ask him to remind you how glorious and miraculous his salvation is. Be in awe of a God who would do this. And if you're having trouble and you don't know, you know, and, and you don't feel this and, and you don't know what to think, you know, just cry out to God. Like, God, give me a grand vision of who you are. Help me see how wonderful salvation is. Remind me what a miraculous and glorious event this really is because you made my dead heart come alive. I think this is pretty good advice that I was encouraged to do and I would encourage you to do because in the busyness of our lives we really take time just to be still and meditate and know how glorious God is and how miraculous salvation is. And the last three verses of our passage really drive home the point that Jesus is trying to make. You know, we may look at these verses, especially verse 48, where Jesus tells her, your sins are forgiven, and think that Jesus is mainly saying this for the woman's sake that her sins had been forgiven based upon the act just performed. But I don't think this is, Je- this is who Jesus is directing this statement to. I believe this woman had a previous encounter with Jesus where she found rede- redemption, where she found that her life changed, which is why she actually performed this act in the first place, why she was willing to humble herself and be bold and take risks. So if Jesus wasn't saying this mainly for the woman, Who was he saying this to? And I think he was saying this to Simon and his guests. Because after Jesus said this to the woman, in verse 49 we read, the guests are asking each other, who is this who forgives sins? And I believe by saying this, and for them to say this, what Jesus was doing was twofold. For one, he was informing Jesus or Simon and his guests that he was the one that they could come to, to seek forgiveness, that he was the generous money lender who canceled their debts, who could cancel their debt of sin. And secondly, I think he was wanting those around the table to recognize the new status of this woman and show her radical hospitality because she has a new label. No longer is she, is she to be known as sinner. Now she has the label forgiven. And they too, and demonstrate a radical love in an in-between place. And unfortunately, the story ends here, so we never find out what happened to Simon and his guests. Did they get it? Did they eventually come to know the extravagant love of Jesus and in turn perform extravagant acts of kindness, one of which was welcoming this former sinner into the community? Or did they miss the call and continue to love little? We don't know how their story ends, but we have control of how our story can go. And so have you experienced the extravagant love of Jesus? And if so, how are you demonstrating that you have this love? Once again, he who has been forgiven much loves much. 
but he who has been forgiven little loves little. For myself, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that oftentimes I wish I didn't care that much what people thought of me. But I'm learning that it's not so much about me as it is about Christ and what he's done for me and how I want to make much of Jesus. I'm learning to take more risks and willing to look a bit more foolish if necessary in order for Christ to be made known. And it's not a matter of being reckless or obnoxious. I mean, the world has enough obnoxious Christians in the world. They don't need to see that. But it's about loving others radically because this is how Christ loved us. The world needs to see people who demonstrate by their actions the things that they say they believe in. And so I'm learning to pray more before I go into restaurants or before I get on planes to see you know, if, <clears throat> if God might have someone that he would call me to demonstrate um, extravagant love to and to be Christ to. It's funny, I was kind of, I was praying this as I got on my plane to fly back from, from Boston because I didn't know who my seatmate next to me would be on my plane. But when I got on the plane, um, it turned out, just by coincidence, it was another um, conference attendee. So I had to spend the first uh, flight of my trip sitting next to a pastor and, and talking with him instead of being able to engage someone else and share Christ with this person. But, you know, I'm learning to pray and keep my eyes open and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in case God calls me to demonstrate his love to others. And so I would ask you to just think about your in-between places, the places you work, your community, the restaurants you eat in, and pray that God will help you stay in tune to those he would want to exemplify his radical love for. Because he who has been forgiven much, loves much. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this love that this woman demonstrates. I thank you, Father, for the example that she sets to us. Though she never says a word in this story, she teaches us much more uh, than we can probably grasp. Father, I thank you for her. And Father, even in these still quiet moments, bring to our minds people in our in-between places that we see that you would want us to have extravagant love for and demonstrate this through acts of kindness. Father, bring to mind these people as we have some moments of silence and reflect on your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.